Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is Ray Robertson. He is the author of nine novels, four collections of nonfiction, and a book of poetry. His new book is Estates Large and Small, which is published by our friends at Biblioasis. Ray, thank you for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me. It's an honor to have you here, Ray. And first, I want to ask about Biblioasis, who is not just one of my favorite independent publishers, but one of my favorite publishers, period. How did you hook up with them and what is it like working with them? Oh, wow. That's a long story. This this will be the whole show, I guess. Um, All right. (laughs) uh, Dan Wells is the publisher of Biblioasis, who I'm sure you know. You know Dan. I do. um, well, we didn't know, but we, we were born in the same town, the same small town in southwestern Ontario. And, but we didn't know each other. We we're about five years apart. So um, we didn't know each other. And um, so I had published a book in 2007, and uh, I was doing some promotion for it. He came by and he had started this new press literally out of his own house. I remember going to his house and it was just a room with, you know, stuff everywhere. And, uh, and I was surprised there was someone else from my hometown who actually read books. So I was pretty excited. It was pretty great, little on mine. And uh, so we became pretty good friends. And it became pretty apparent that we were, I mean, but when I met Dan, I had probably published, I don't know, five or six books. And, you know, you're lucky. The way I look at it is if you don't have to pay for your own books to be published, you're a big success, right? So it's like Steve Earl said that with music. Yeah. What's success? It's you have to pay for your own CD. So... So I had a pretty good career, but when I met Dan, I realized this is the first person I'd met in publishing who was like me or my friends in terms of he really cared about books, words, sentences. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about sentences, which is something I've never really talked about with too many publishers. It's about ideas and concepts and themes and hooks and marketability. And Dan was like, wow, that's a really beautiful sentence. or that's really funny or something. So we became fast friends and we started working together uh, on a nonfiction book. Uh, called Why Not 15 Reasons to Live, and then we did a novel together, and then eventually we just sort of throw our, 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 our you know, talents together, and it really is, uh, at my age, I'm 56, so I've been kicking around for a while, this is my 14th book, to be with a, a Canadian publisher. Uh, most of the publishers in Canada aren't owned by Canadians, they're owned by branch, they're branch plants of, you know, multinationals, and, you know, that can work out. I had a book with Doubleday, and multinational and it, it can it can work but only if you make them a lot of money then they like you a lot if you don't make them a lot of money they're not too concerned with for you know so i i think people uh like dan and there aren't that many really who are who are canadian-owned companies who are who are making our own literature and believe in beautiful looking books and beautiful edited books and all the things that no one really cares about big ways to sort of embrace it <laughs> and i love that idea i love that idea i think one of the things that i was saying to dan the other day and we were talking about how one of his models was when the sort of the record industry, the music industry was kind of collapsing mm. and these smaller little labels were popping up saying, you know, we can't exist as this. It doesn't, it doesn't engender good music. So one of his models were some smaller record labels like Bloodshot and people like that, which was totally jive with my ideas of, you know, the music industry and things. So I feel mm. very fortunate. The other thing that's neat is that Dan um, seems to allow me a lot of freedom to either write fiction or nonfiction. And as I've gotten older, I tend to alternate a novel with nonfiction and, 
and uh, just different parts of the brain, you know. So uh, I love the freedom. It doesn't really matter so much what you write about it, but as so much as how you write. And I, that's that's sort of a publisher after my heart, you know. Long answer. Yeah. <laughs> no, I love it. And uh, Dan is a really great guy. Um, publishes wonderful books. I try to promote the heck out of him. He's done a lot for me as a as a bookseller. So um, I really appreciate him and Biblio Oasis and the work they're doing. So thank you so much. Well, just, for just that one, answer. one last thing. The, 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 the thing that I think is really exciting that in the last few years is that this relationship that he's helped, he's encouraged to form with uh, you know good independent bookstores like yours is mm. something that I, I'm you know it, you got this world that doesn't really want good books, blah blah blah. So he's just mm. saying let's just talk to the people who are, who are, who do care. Let's not try to sell, you know, scented candles and, and big books on cats. Let's just say, this is what we have. We're not everybody's thing. And let's reach mm -hmm. out to other people who feel like this. You know, we, we are true believers. A friend of mine talks about them, true believers, suffers from TB believe TV disease. You know, they really do believe this stuff's important. So I love the sort of the relationships that Midways has been building with all sorts of good independent bookstores. It makes you feel like you're a little less alone in this big, yawning you know cavern of you know whatever's out there you know it makes you feel a little less alone it's nice it's really nice it is absolutely thank you so much ray um now i want to talk a little bit about the grateful dead and more specifically their lyrics uh, what do hunter and garcia's lyrics mean to you and what do they mean to your protagonist in this novel i notice that your protagonist tends to think in hunterisms <laughs> Um, well, the epigraph from the book, of course, is from the dead, the Terrapin Station, until uh, mm. things we've never seen seem familiar, which, which really is kind of at the heart of, heart of the book. The thing I like about Hunter's lyrics, because um, rock lyrics aren't the same as poetry. You know, poetry comes with its own music. You don't need a guitar mm. or a piece of right? There are very few mm. lyricists who you can actually read. You know, you can read Joni Mitchell, you can read Cohen, you can read Dylan to a degree. Um, Hunter's lyrics, you know, that's great about Hunter's lyrics is they don't get in the way of the music. They sort of attach to the line so wonderfully smoothly. And then occasionally you'll get this line and go, oh, that's not something you usually see in a pop song or it's a metaphor or it's a perspective. So I, I, do, I do believe that without Garcia, they're, they're, not, they're not quite as poignant. <laughs> you need the music. But when you do, there are moments that you think, wow, these, these sort of transcend lyrics. These are almost bordering on, well, you know, I wouldn't put a book, I wouldn't put a line as an epigraph unless it stood on its own, right? Because there's no soundtrack. And mm -hmm. I really, you know, I really do believe that some of these lines are, well, what were you saying? I was interested. What did you mean hunterisms? I'm curious what you meant. Well, these kind of like more, you know, um, profound kind of like, philosophical like Zen Cohen like lyrics that are like oh this is this observation about life and philosophy that seems so simple but no one's put it into quite these like words before you know that kind of thing yeah yeah well and, and I think one, one of the things that that's appealing about the way that Hunter and Garcia work was they both come from a folk tradition you know they didn't come to yeah. it from rock and roll right so unlike a lot of rock and rollers, they had this huge catalog or this whole, especially Garcia, of, of a history of songs behind them. So, yeah, mm -hmm. I'm a more of a second set dead guy. I like jamming, et cetera. But I also grew up listening to songs. 
And mm -hmm. one of the things that's unique about the dead is that they go so far out, but yet they're rooted in such Americana, so much the essence of American music, country and blues and folk and, and even jazz to a great degree. It's a very Americana band, you know, even though you don't think of them that way. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to continue along these lines for a moment. And listeners, the reason we're doing so is because um, the protagonist of the novel uh, leaves a relationship or drifts away from a relationship because he discovers marijuana and Jerry Garcia's guitar. Um, speaking of Jerry Garcia's guitar, how does Jerry's guitar playing differ from, say, any other rock and roll guitar players solos? And I should note that I am personally partial to Trey Anastasio, but I, of right. course, love Jerry as well. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, you know, you probably know what I'm going to say then, in the sense that his guitar playing has its own personality. It sounds like him. And that's the hardest thing, I think, for anyone to do. And, and as a writer, you know, young writers will say, you know, how do I get a style? You know, it's like you just keep writing and writing, so you just can't do anything else. In fact, you get frustrated. I can't escape this style. But that's the thing that I instantly know Garcia's guitar. And what's what a good litmus test is sometimes when you play slide, you still know it's him. Most slide player people put on a slide, it sounds like they're playing, you know, some blues. It sounds like Jerry playing slide. It has that same mellifluous, light, single touch tone. Um, one of the neatest metaphors that I think Garcia used when he talked about his, his guitar sound is this, they asked him about jazz as well. You know, I was influenced by Coltrane. He, he said, not riffs or anything like that, nothing for touch. He said, just in the sense that he spoke in paragraphs. He had something to say. And I had always sort of a shoot instrument, instrumentals, you know, virtuosity as sort of wankery and kind of like, you know, you know, I grew up in the 80s, a lot of bad metal where I grew up, you know, guitar solos and threat. And when I listened to not just Garcia, but people like Hussein Trey or, or Richard Thompson, or they're actually, I'm, I'm interested in listening to their guitar talk, you know, and I'll sometimes as a guy who works in words, it's almost disappointing when we come back to the words because it's like, no, I want to hear more because there are things that you can say with music you can't say with words. I mean, music beats off, you know. Um, I don't know if you're a fan at all of Gene Clark, the wonderful singer-songwriter who's been the birds. Um, uh, I wrote an essay about him in a book of mine called Lives of the Poets with Guitars. Now I forget my point I was going to make, though. Well, at least you like Gene. We're on the same page with Gene. <laughs> I forget yeah. how I was say, what the hell are we talking about? Guitar? <laughs> Jerry Garcia's guitar. And of course, yeah, um, uh, yeah, Richard Thompson. It'll come yeah, back. Richard Thompson. Oh, yeah, when it does, just jump right back in. Um, Richard Thompson, who you mentioned, of course, listeners, has been on this podcast before about oh, his really? autobiography. Yeah, oh, yeah, wow. he was a, Yo, he's a huge hero of mine. Um, also, for the way that he's just consistently not stopped making what he wants to do. You know, yeah. he's never let the industry get in the way. He's never let downturns in fashion get in the way, you know. Um, and I find that really inspiring. You know, it's 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 harder as you get older to keep that faith, to keep that belief, because the signs are so much saying we don't want this, we don't care. You know, and you look at someone like Thompson, and you think he he really has um, just continued to do what he's always done. You know, try to have to try to explore his his instrument and his and his mind and his soul, and yeah, it's really inspirational. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Ray. Um, I now want to talk to you about the idea of a virtual bookstore and really of a virtual store in general. But let's yeah. start with the idea of a virtual yeah. bookstore. How does a virtual bookstore work and what does it have to do with this story, Estates Large and yeah. Small? Well, I, I always know that a book's working when I don't 
when I try to find out things as I go along, you know, I'm distrustful of someone who says, I had an idea for a book and then they wrote it because I know my brain doesn't carry, doesn't have enough room to carry a whole universe in it. And one of the things that happened in this book was, is that, uh, is that Phil has a bookstore in Toronto um, and eventually, you know, skyrocketing big city rents and pandemic and lockdowns, et cetera. But he closes the store. And I, I know a few people who have closed their bookstores and basically move their, their inventory online. And it's, it's, it's the next best thing. You're still involved with books. You're still involved with, you know, making people happy, connecting them with books. But what all of them have sort of said to me is that they really miss people. They miss the interaction. They miss, well, that little picture on our screen right here, your store. It's kind of, I kind of want to go in there and see what's in there and see what kind of people are in there. And I'm not a real social person. I don't think you can be a writer and really be a, play well with others really well. But even I, you know, over the course of, say, the lockdown, the pandemic, you know, I always think, gee, people do have a place in your life, maybe more than I thought. And, and that really fed into Phil in, in this book in the sense that um, sometimes we don't really know where we stand until we're sort of forced to stand outside our place of comfort. And so he is sort of busy, busy, busy life. And then all of a sudden, he's not. He's going to move all of his books online. He's going to work from home. And all of a sudden, he sees his life in a different way. And I think that sometimes that's really, sometimes we're so busy living our lives, we don't really have time to tend to them. You know, it kind of happens. Well, he's, he kind of has an enforced idleness. So uh, he kind of says, geez, you know, I've been smoking a lot of pot. And all I have to do is listen to the dead and watch YouTube. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and so he kind of ventures, puts his toe in the water of life. And, and, I, and, I, and I think that's, that, that's it's true of a lot of people. It certainly is for me in the sense that you can become so, um, not productive, but so directed toward your goals, you forget really that, you know, that's not the only thing in life. You, you kind of get to your destination, but you don't notice things along the way. And I think that's one of the things the book's about. And it was an interesting time too, to write. I mean, I didn't think I'm going to write a pandemic book, you know, some, some cool hook to it. But it kind of metaphorically worked in the sense that, you know, people are forced to stay apart. And he's like, that's okay with me. I've always been six feet apart, you know. But after a while, especially, especially with this idea that, you know, people, these true believers that I'm speaking of, that you feel connected to the past. You feel connected to other people you don't know because you're all part of this sort of same loose community, you know. Like we all, like we all, you know, you dig Richard Thompson, I dig Richard Thompson. That gives us this connection, so to speak. And that, that can't really happen when all you have is a credit card and, you know, information saying, I would like this book or something. So I think that's one of the things that he ponders in the book. And then the book ponders sort of our relationship with other people, because I'm not a purple people person. I'm not, you know, which may be to my detriment. I'm sure it is. But yeah. this opportunity with, with the pandemic, it kind of I really felt like when I was writing, like, oh, this is this, this is the right time to write this book, because it really kind of metaphors what's going on in his life. With a lot of people with their lives, even if their bookstores haven't been shut down, they've relocated. It sort of makes you wonder about the place of, of, of friends and people and what is a friend and what is a what is your relationship to other people. So yeah, absolutely, Ray. And we're gonna return uh, to the topic of the pandemic right after the break. But for now, listeners, we are going to take a short break for a word from our sponsors, and then I will be right back with Ray Robertson. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. 
Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Ray Robertson, author of Estates Large and Small, which is published by our friends at Biblioasis. Ray, before the break, we were talking a little bit about the pandemic, uh, pandemic novels writing during the pandemic. You write in this novel that it is difficult to inspire loyalty and dedication in your staff while attired in a house coat and flip-flops. So my question for you, Ray, is what does a good leader look like in the COVID era? I have no idea because I'm not a leader. I don't <laughs> I just try to stay out of the way. The grown-ups go about their business, and I just scully away. You know? mm-hmm. um, well, I, I, I'll totally change your question because I really have no idea how sure. to live at home and scrap it. But what's interesting, though, what made me think of it with your question is that, mm-hmm. well, you know, what what has come out of this? I don't mean the political side. I just mean in terms of, I don't know, the existential. And it really does mm-hmm. come back to what I was talking about with the book in the sense that you want to you, – you, you, at least I do, I want to sort of free my life of clutter and sort of, you know, focus on what's important. And sometimes I think people, at least from my life, sometimes have been sacrificed for those things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like you have a really good relationship. So it means you can count on the other person to encourage you and help you and do your things until you realize that they've become kind of a helpmate. I'm not really that other special person. And it's a natural kind of deal. And I think one of the nice things that, that's come out of this enforced isolation is for me is that um the people are important and even if it's in these small solo ways even if it's you just standing behind your counter and seeing somebody browse and then you know put a book down and pick it back up and then bring it to the counter and then take it home and then maybe you're lucky and two months later they say hey i really you know that book really you know blew me away and i led to something else i mean what a wonderful way to spend your life you know Mm-hmm. Uh, at, the, at the front of this book, uh, the dedication, I dedicated to a few friends of mine home, secondhand bookstores. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, it's not easy, especially in a city like Toronto, which would rather have you have a big expensive restaurant or a clothing store or something. And mm-hmm. I, I kind of, I sometimes I remind them that, boy, you know, what a special thing that you do. You give people a chance to change their lives, these little epiphanies on the shelves. They just walk in and you know, it's harder when you get older, but when you're younger, you need to walk into a store like yours or, and your life could change that day. It could, it could, if you find the right record or the right, you know, the right book or whatever. And I find that that's pretty, pretty exciting. It's a pretty exciting thing to still be a part of in a world where it's very, very anachronistic. You know, we definitely are on the outside, but there's something, something cool about that too. You know, that, 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 uh, to care about something passionately that most people don't. I and mean, it's kind of foolish too, but, I've given my life to it, so I'm not going back now, and I'm sure you have too. Good books and good mm-hmm. music, I think, make for better lives. And I don't think it's because you're necessarily more informed and you can have better cocktail conversation or even you'll be happier. It's just you're being more alive, I think. 
uh, you know, if we got enough to eat, if we're lucky enough to have enough food to eat and a roof over our heads, and I think that's what we're here for, is to be alive and, and books and music and, and, and even people, the interaction we have are one of those things. And I guess it's just hard work to always, to, to be alive because we, we tend to rather sleep. And I guess that's one of the things that good books and good music do. They kind of give us a gentle nudge and go, wake up a little bit. <laughs> yeah. There's a beautiful, interesting world out there and some, even some tragic things, but, but you know, check them out now before it's too late. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I want to keep talking about books for a little while, but we're fortunate here in, in Aspen to be somewhere where people really embrace um, an independent bookstore and same in Raleigh with Quill Ridge Books and same, you know, my friends in San Francisco at Books Inc. and the Booksmith, et cetera, um, these communities that really rally around yeah. these places. It's yeah. a special place to be. But you write some interesting things about why someone gets into the used books business. Right. Uh, for our listeners, can you share uh, the types of people that your protagonist believes go into the used uh, books business? I can just speak of my friends. Yeah. Well, most yeah. of them were like, like all of us, you know, they just love books and music and had these big plans. I'll be a writer or a musician or maybe I'll be an academic. I'll teach. And then, you know, they find out that academia is not for them and then eh, maybe not right. But they just love being around, you know, the best that has been thought and said. And Plus, part of them, all of us, all of them, I guess myself as well, probably, I'm, I'm guessing you too. There's a, there's a bit of a collector's impulse, you know, that kind of, I got to have all those, you know, grow press collections of that when you're young or all those. So there's that element too. But I think it's just people who love being around the physicality, you know, being around books. And mm -hmm. to think that you could somehow, um, I remember as a kid, you know, I read a book by Bertrand Russell, you know, The Pursuit of Happiness. And, uh, mm -hmm. and, and the, the thing that stuck with me, you know, 40 years later, 35 years later, was that he said, do something you like to do. You'll be able to put up with any love affair gone wrong. You'll be able to put up with anything if you like what you do. I mean, you're going to have a bad day once in a while. Who does? But And, mm -hmm. you know, I came from a small town, working class town. Uh, you know, my parents emphasized education because they, they, didn't, they didn't have a chance to even go to high school. You know, they were working when they were 14, a whole different world. And um, it's really exciting to, 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 well, just to think about the power that books have um, and you come from a place where they're not as valued as much and to think that they can have this transformative power. And there are all these people like you're listening to all these stores all over the world who I don't know, but I think that I'm connected to, to it in the same way that if I went to somebody, if I went to your house and you, I looked at your CD collection or whatever, I would feel like I know this person better than somebody that I, you know, that I know in my own life because of our shared experiences that way. And I, it's just really exciting to me. And I'm excited to be part of it, you know. Absolutely. And speaking of a collector's impulse, I'm interested in the work of buying book collections at estate <laughs> sales. Um, <laughs> This goes on in your novel. This was also a thread in a recent novel by Victor LaBelle, oh. um, a sci-fi novel that that's interesting to me. Um, have you ever done this or how did you become familiar with this well, line just, of work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, a, a couple of friends who do it and I went along a couple of times. And it, uh -huh. very, it very much is like in the book. Yeah. In, in the sense that you literally, someone will call and say, you know, my spouse died or... <laughs> We get a lot right. of those calls, you know, my husband died and I've got a basement full of records. Can you come over and look at them? Right. And it is, it's kind of overwhelming because 
you're you're basically seeing someone's life work you know they've got everything up there and everything alphabetized and they've got their collections you, know, you get your soul jazz here i got my bebop here i got this and then of course they're they're long gone now and it's just a bunch of stuff so yeah it's pretty it's it's kind of overwhelming um it's kind of sad but it's also kind of wonderful because of course if if you buy the the, the collection then that mm -hmm. those books get redistributed again to people and make them happy and so it's this ongoing process of, and I, I think there's something beautiful about that you know i always like that when you, you get a used book and it would have someone else's name in it you're like oh it's you know passed around and part of it nothing like a nice fresh book but mm -hmm. yeah and I, I think that's one of the things that's exciting about when you when you you go to one of these houses or somebody's this thing it's it's somebody's whole life it's it's their entirety of what's most important unless they have children or but a lot of people really it is it's my 78s or my original beatles pressings or something you know and there's nothing wrong with that and it's there's something sad and tragic but there's also something beautiful in the sense that it continues that's you know the title now i'm sitting here talking to you thinking about it i mean yeah states large and small we die they take our stuff away on the other hand it goes out back into the world and recirculates and brings other people joy other people inspiration and consolation and um so that that's 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 kind of the nuts and bolts of it i guess yeah is 250 dollars like an average offer for someone's collection like that <laughs> when the protagonist offers the uh, widow at the beginning no, of her book no well the problem is see, that's the neat thing about the, the, one of the nice things about um uh, uh, work on this book of course dan was a bookseller before he was a publisher so i had mm -hmm. um, he'd remind me when i give him various drafts he'd say you know if this guy's selling his books online he really wouldn't pay too much for paperbacks because he's buying a paperback online so I, oh mm -hmm. right that's a normal bookstore so no that was sort of a mm -hmm. sympathy buy you know he goes to somebody's house this poor poor widow's there and all he got all he has is you know really nice collection of sort of penguin classics etc so he forks mm -hmm. up for money for books that he doesn't need, he doesn't have room for, and he probably won't be able to sell because he yeah. hates the idea of these books sitting mildewing in this basement. And that's part of that collector thing too, that bookseller thing. I mean, yeah. most booksellers I know have another bookstore in their basement that's not for sale. It's just the overstock they have because they can't not buy things and not take them. They don't want to leave. Oh, I know no one will buy this. I've got a... Um, a friend he's got like these books i know these books will never sell but i can't i couldn't just leave them there you know <laughs> and yeah. and uh there's something again that's that's something quite beautiful and I, I like being around people like that who care about useless things <laughs> yeah right on and um you know the brilliance of that scene is the nuances that like the the protagonist is offering 250 dollars as a sympathy buy but yeah, the widow right. is is like, that all or she's just for everything <laughs> exactly yeah and that's one of the things that you know it's a success of drafts when you're writing it and mm -hmm. i realized that very often he's buying stuff he doesn't need and can't afford to keep and that was okay because that sounds like that world that sounds like that guy you can't help but not care i mean i was out walking my dog this morning and there's mm -hmm. sort of what book boxes around if you have those we are people put like secondhand mm -hmm. books out or whatever and there was a, a wonderful copy of uh, T.H. Lawrence's Seven Pillars of Wisdom, which I'm never going to read, but I had to pick yeah. it up. You know, I wanted to um, ask a little bit more about books, but I do want to say before I ask this question, that I'm glad you keep bringing up um, music and, and records because um, this store here in Aspen, Explore Booksellers, I'm going to start carrying records here because there's no oh. record stores in Aspen or any of the surrounding wow. towns, which is really strange to me. Um, 
But I would like to ask you a little bit more about books in general. Like, why read books? Why write books? Your narrator says that life is just a bunch of things that happen or don't, but a good story makes up for it. Um, but why books, Ray? What value does literary fiction have in our society in 2022? Wow, what a huge question. All I can, all I can instead of delivering a, a lecture, I'll just give you an anecdote. Um, mm -hmm. I was recording, I, I, I've had a few books that were recorded on the, like audio tape or, or audio books, but I've never done it myself. So I was offered the opportunity to do it with the States and um, I was really terrible at it. I, I thought I'd be really good at it. I really was. I'm good like on stage, but the meticulousness and everything. But anyway, so mm. one thing that did happen though was over the course of the five days of recording it was, mm. I was thinking about the difference between listening to someone read and, and, and reading, you know, and, and certainly I'm hoping people will listen to the book or listen to, you know, it's wonderful. It's wonderful to have audio books. But there is something mm -hmm. different about just being uninterrupted with a paragraph. And then you get to the end of the paragraph and you pause and you look up and then you go back and you read a sentence again and you put a little mark beside it. And then later on, mm -hmm. 30 pages later, you think, you know, did that count? And it starts to be a, 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 a symbiotic thing where all the parts are connected. I think what books do, a good book, um, it sort of combats the episodic nature of our lives, which is just sort of instantaneous, like pop, 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 information, blah, 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 blah. Um, and information mm -hmm. never, you know, saved anybody's soul. It's, you know, it's a necessary right. condition. It's not, it's, not, it's not enough. And what I think a book mm -hmm. does, it's like a prayer. And it could be a poem. It could be a novel. It could be a song. It could be a movie, right? But it's a sustained mm -hmm. period of sort of enrapture, <laughs> enrapturement of... Um, and you can do it more than once or twice or three times. I mean, especially as I get older, I tend to reread, watch movies again. My wife watches the new movies. I just, I'm just going to watch, you know, something I've seen 17 times, you know. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate the way the beginning and the end talk to each other, which I didn't notice the first six times I saw. It. And I really get, and that's something that I think is really unique about our time in the sense that there's this barrage of information. It's bam, 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 bam. And I don't think anyone's getting any wiser or happier because of it. Whereas the antithesis is these, these, these outmoded things, black squiggles on a white page mm -hmm. that, you know, are so antiquated really is this unique, almost, it's almost like a psychedelic experience. It's a different kind of consciousness. And, mm -hmm. and readers, like, like dedicated readers know this. It's like a place that you can just trip, just leave the world behind. And, you know, you don't have a hangover the next day. You just, you've know, you, you got a different place. And the neat thing about really good books is, and this is the real twist, is that although they're about a different place and a different world and blah, 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 and you go off and you escape, whatever, ultimately they are about you because they're about human nature. And human mm -hmm. nature, to me, doesn't change. You know, we're born, we long for love, we don't get it, we die. The big three things, you know, those are the big things. And I think that a book that's even about something that, you know, oh, okay, that's interesting. I don't really know that world, et cetera. Like, you know, a secondhand book selling, blah, blah. It's really about everybody every day. Why are we here? What's the point of being here? What is our responsibility to other people? Uh, what, how do we fit in in the cosmos? All these sorts of things. So mm -hmm. I don't know how we got on this conversation, but. <laughs> well, you know, I really like that you mentioned reading as a psychedelic experience because one of my favorite events I've ever hosted was with an author, Scott McClanahan, uh, where he was talking about the experience of just staring at this piece of paper, which is really like a piece of a tree. And it's like you're staring at this piece of paper and it produces hallucinations in your brain and like how amazing that really is um, when you when you sit down and think about it. Well, 
Thank you, Ray. And listeners, we have barely touched upon the surface of this book. This book will be one of the best of 2022 for me. If you love books, you will love this book. That is a book and podcast guarantee. <laughs> but Ray, um, to bring us full circle kind of back to the hunterisms that I was talking about in the beginning, you write that until we turn into ourselves, it's necessary to impersonate who we want to be. Can you unpack this statement about human nature for our listeners and maybe uh, an example or two? Well, I guess it's, it's, it's I was talking about uh, Phil's uh, annoying nephew, you know, who's, uh, who works for him. But, he, he, you know, that's a beautiful thing about literature. You can be annoyed with someone in life, but a literature you go, yeah, but on the other hand, he's a good kid. And that's, that's why I'm a terrible person, but I think I'm an okay writer because I have that second chance to go, well, on the other hand. Um, mm -hmm. And what was the, oh, about the thing? Yeah, well, it's like, what, what, it's, you know, it's kind of existentialism 101 in the sense that we do kind of, you know, someone once said that you are what happens to you and what you do. Well, mm -hmm. you know, what happens to you, you don't have much control over, but what you do. So when you're young, you're sort of amorphous. You're sort of like, well, I want to, maybe I'll be a hat guy. Maybe I'll wear hats or maybe I'll wear a scarf or maybe I'll carry around a copy of Baudelaire or maybe I'll, you know, and you're kind of trying things on. I think that's exciting. And that's, that's one of the neat things about youth, you know. Um, but and so I think that's what we do. We almost we almost try on different hats until we find something that that, that works. And I think the happiest people, the I won't say successful because that implies sort of materialism, but I guess the happiest people are the people who sort of were honest about who they are and what they like to do, and 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 they didn't have to act anymore. It's like, yeah, I like wearing this hat, but you do have to try it out, and that's the thing that's. It's really what's great about being young. You know, you get all that energy. When you get older, you think, Jesus, if only I had that energy I had when I was young. But you needed it to do everything, to try everything, to try to go, no, I don't want to be. You know, I have so many friends who just about got their PhD or just been an MA. And I, you know what? I cannot go in that world. But I needed mm -hmm. to get my foot in that world to know it. And I think that's the messiness of life. Why it's, you know, why it's, it's why art is ideal for chronicling. Um, mm -hmm life as opposed to say straight philosophy in the sense that it is messy it's it's, it's a little of this a little of that it's a little gray and i think that's one of the things that um that phil is reflecting on the book because he's 55 so he's not doing that anymore for better or for worse he is who he is he's this slightly sort of cynical misanthropic bookseller who loves music and just came out of a 10-year relationship and and he meets this woman and, I, and, and I've, I've really enjoyed talking about all the, the big picture stuff but the one thing i did want to say about the book is it it, it is kind of a kind of a love story in the sense that I've, I would never set out to write a love story. You know, my publisher would probably, you know, put an injunction against it. But I, I, I did I did kind of think that their relationship was pretty special. And um, it's an important part of the book, too, because as we, we haven't really talked about, but one of the things that they do is they decide to teach each other 2,500 years of Western philosophy. Well, they smoke mm -hmm. a lot of pot and drink a lot of wine, but geez. But, and that was kind of a cool thing because I studied philosophy at university. I always kind of wanted to go back and sort of, you know, you know, you got this whole wall full of shelves that you haven't read in 30 years and all these markings in them and you can't. So it was kind of fun to go through. And one of the challenges was, was to not make it stuffy or academic or to make it sound like two people genuinely saying, okay, well, I've never really, uh, you know, looked at Plato. What, what's going on with this? And that was one of the challenges. And, I, and, and hopefully, hopefully it worked because I didn't want it to be boring. You know, I think that's one of the, the things I was lucky with. I didn't do an English degree. I did a philosophy degree. So I was never taught the fine art of pretending to like boring up books. You know, it's like, oh, it's a classic. I know it's boring, but you, you should you should like it. 
mm. it's important for me to actually enjoy, you know, a book for its humor and its strength and its voice and all that kind of stuff. So I'm hoping that the philosophy stuff works because uh, it was a big part of the book, you know. Right, right. So um, I really appreciate that you wrote this book. And I appreciate your friends who are uh, almost PhDs. I, I think I myself <laughs> went down. I, I love teaching. Um, yeah. And I love the intellectual life, but I don't love the idea of, of working 80 hours a week for $20,000 a year, you know. It's, yeah, exactly. um, well, also, my friends uh, who teach say, I love teaching. I just hate everything else about it. I could just teach. Yeah. But it's dealing with right. other teachers because the problem, the teachers that are the problem, not the students. <laughs> but uh, yeah. I'd love to talk to you more some other time about your relationship with music. It sounds like that's a big part of your your background and and your interests. Um, it is. It is. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm a musician. I've been in bands my whole life. And we've um, at Quail Ridge Books uh, in here in Aspen, we work with um, music promoters and venues and festivals to do like books and bands programs. Wow. Uh, and, and talk about music. And in Raleigh, where Quail Ridge Books is, there's Merge Records um, with the folks from Super Chunk. And, um, you know, they have a lot of great bands on that wow. record label. So there's just a lot of... Um, opportunities for symbiosis but yeah music is um actually that's how dan and i bonded at first was just talking about music and oh, our, really? our love for washington yeah wow did, um, you, uh, did he tell you that next year i'm publishing a book a non-fiction book on the dead he did not but i cannot wait to yeah, uh, i was thinking maybe maybe, uh, maybe my wife and i should get in the car come down there we can do like a music book event that would be great we we, oh, we, man, went, to grad, we went to grad school in the states for four years so we have a real kind of we have friends in the states, and we don't. Yeah. We haven't been back in years, obviously, because. Of, but uh, so it's a book called "All the Years Combined: The Grateful Dead and Fifty Shows," and it's sort of a. There's a long essay called "How I Became a Deadhead," but it's basically fifty shows, not the greatest hits, but basically the beginning, the rise, and the fall, and the whole thing. But just not in terms of the biographical, but in terms of fifty gigs. Um, so, anyway, that's next year if we're all still here. Oh man, that's fantastic! I hope that you'll come back on the show to talk about that one. Either that, or we'll we'll do it in person and uh, yeah, have a beverage. That'd be great. Yeah, that sounds great. great. You, yeah, you too, Ray. Thank you for writing this wonderful novel. I sent a photo of the cover uh, of this book to my old colleague Sarah Godin at Quill Ridge Books in Raleigh and told her she had to read it. Listeners, this will be one of the best books of 2022. Check it out; you will not regret it, listeners. I've been speaking with Ray Robertson, author of Estates Large and Small, which is published by our friends at Biblioasis. Ray, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Jason. Once again, I would like to thank Ray Robertson for joining me. Copies of Estates Large and Small can be ordered from www.explorebooksellers.com. I would also like to thank my sponsors, Quail Ridge Books and Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.